0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker,
1: and I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy, and we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes.
0: In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Adelaide Hall, the greatest singer you've never heard of.
1: Hall. Where's
0: that then? Ba-boom! You need one of those <laughs> uh, ka-ching things.
1: Hey, like this? Hey,
0: hey! Perfect. Thank you very much, MK. Uh, I mean, actually, there is an Adelaide Hall in Toronto. Oh. <laughs> okay. And you'd think there's got to be one in Australia. But no, our Adelaide is a singer. And I can't say she was born Adelaide Smith or Adelaide Jones. She was Adelaide Hall from the day she arrived on this earth until the day 92 years later she left it.
1: Okay, so where's she from? And when is this?
0: Pretty much the whole of the 20th century. She's born in Brooklyn in 1901 to mixed-race parents. There's African-American, Native American, even European-American, and she dies in London in 1993.
1: Okay, and you know what is coming next, Oswin. Why do I need to know about this woman? What makes her so interesting
0: Ah, well, you don't need to listen to me okay. try and sell Adelaide to you. <laughs> listen to Adelaide herself.
2: About Minnie the butcher She was a low-down hoochie coocher. She was the roughest, toughest frail, but Minnie had a heart as big as a whale. Diamond, lovely suits and ties and socks my.
1: that sound. I think i recognise some of the songs, but I, I don't know the singer. Yeah,
0: right. I mean, most of those are from the 1920s and the 30s, and were some of the earliest recordings of those tunes. There, you just heard Duke Ellington on Creole Love Call and on Chicago Stomp Down, Cab Calloway's Mini the Moocher, mm. and Fats Waller on I Can't Give You Anything But Love.
1: Well, so I know those names, but I don't know Adelaide. And you'll know
0: Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and maybe even Josephine Baker, but Adelaide?
1: So why should I need to know her? There must be thousands of people who nearly made it.
0: No, No, Adelaide really made it, made it big. In the early 1930s, she's one of the wealthiest black women in America. Oh, wow. And during the Second World War, she's thought to be the highest paid female entertainer in Britain.
1: What, more than Vera Lynn? Yep. Well, that is so weird that I haven't heard her name then. Okay, you've got me. I'm intrigued.
0: That's good. And while (laughs) I've got you, alongside Cab Calloway, Fats Waller and Duke Ellington, alongside Billy and Ella, there's Louis Armstrong. George Gershwin, Bojangles, Rudolf Valentino, the Prince Mm. of Wales, even Al Capone. Everyone is here in Adelaide's story.
1: Wow, even Al Capone. All right, yeah, you've totally convinced me. I definitely need to know more about Adelaide.
0: As with so many of these stories, there is early tragedy. Adelaide's father dies when she's 15 and her sister a couple of years later But it feels that that puts some steel in her backbone, some fire in her belly. Her dad had been a piano teacher, and so Adelaide is determined to make it in show business. She had some very simple advice for anyone else wanting to give it a go.
2: This is how you do it, my dear. You get to know the musicians. You're in the places where they are. And then you ask them if you can sing a song. Be very charming, not too pushy, and be prepared. Know your song, know your key, and sing it. And then someone will hear you and take you out to dinner and give you a job. And there you are.
0: Before she's 20, Adelaide has got a toehold in a new all-black musical called Shuffle Along. Can't say I know that one.
1: Yeah, me neither, but we should have.
0: It doesn't just have an all-black cast like Porgy and Bess. It's written, produced and staged entirely by African-Americans and is seen as the starting gun of the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. It launches the careers of Josephine Baker and Paul Robeson and is the first black musical to play to white audiences across the US.
1: Okay, well... That is pretty significant, isn't it? If that was the first time that people, well, rich white people will pay to see African-American performers. Yeah,
0: and and the rich white is an important caveat here. It changed theatre in America, there's no doubt about it, so that just two years later, another black musical, Running Wild, could define the Roaring Twenties with one very simple word, the Charleston.
1: think you'll find that's two words, actually. Not that I'm pedantic or anything. <laughs> anyway, okay. where, where's Adelaide in all this? All right. Okay.
0: Well, she, she is actually the queen of the Charleston. She stars in Running Wild. She teaches the Hollywood superstar, Rudolph Valentino, how to dance it.
1: Oh, really? I love the Charleston. It is such a fun dance. I really wish I could learn it, actually. Yeah. It's always my favourite on Strictly, every year, always. Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: okay. So, favourite Strictly Charleston.
1: Oh, Georgia May Foote was amazing. She was, was so she? good. It was quite. Who is she? Did you say? Uh, when was she? When was she? Oh, blimey, I can't remember. Maybe. Um like six years ago, seven oh, yeah. years ago, something like that. I'm really guessing though; I'm not sure. But I remember it was just such a tight, brilliant, jazzy performance. It was so good. Oh, I loved um,
0: the one whose mum was a Blue
1: Peter <laughs> presenter, Sophie Ellis bexter Oh, yeah, yeah that's it. she oh, was I great. Thought that was so
0: brilliant. She was. Uh, it was that Australian guy, Brendan, who isn't on anymore. Um, yes, <laughs> but she looked like she was something from the 20s. Yeah,
1: there are so many good ones. Denise Van Outen was really good yeah. as well, and yeah. Caroline Flack.
0: Why can't we remember any of the men's Charleston's?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question, I, and I genuinely can't remember any of them.
0: Do you have a favourite Strictly? Charleston? <laughs> yeah. No, I
1: don't.
3: Uh, do you not watch Strictly? No, no, oh, watch Strictly what? Oh, oh man! I never watched it. No. Oh. <laughs> Oh, we was so showing our age. Yeah, <laughs> totally.
1: I make Ed watch it. He mo every year. He's like, this year I'm not going to watch it. I make him watch
0: it. We're going to have to come back to Strictly because... Definitely, uh, more no, to be said there. Jay's jive. Yes. That's, that's the one for me.
1: Oh, yeah, that was so good. Anyway, we digress. OK. Can, can we just go back a minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... You mentioned earlier the Harlem Renaissance. Yep. Can you just remind me what was all that about? Uh,
0: well, you don't need me to remind you. About
1: oh, you're going to get Adelaide to sing it no, for no, me again. No,
0: not this time. <laughs> I think this is a really good moment to bring on this episode's guest. He's been described by Bernadine Evaristo, Booker Prize winning Bernadine Evaristo, as a hero of our history, of our presence on these shores. And the great Russell T Davis has hailed him as one of the soldiers, gatekeepers and champions of our community. Today, we're honoured to be joined by the quite fantastic historian of black British life and of British gay culture, Stephen Bourne. Thank you. Lovely to meet you, Stephen. I mean, you've written over... 20 books. For me, the essential one is Under Fire, Black Britain in in Wartime, about mm. the Second World War. And also the heartbreaking Black Poppies, which is about the black experience of the, of the First World War. But, of course, I mean, the reason why we're here today is to talk about Adelaide, really. And you've written about Adelaide. It would be fair to say, I think, that you're a world authority.
3: The world authority on Adelaide? No. No, there is someone else. I wouldn't want to claim that no but I am knowledgeable <laughs> <laughs> so
0: what's what's the fascination with her I mean what 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 is the thing which drew you to her in the first place
3: it, it was two things really it was partly because I got to know her I got to meet her properly in 1985 and maintained a sort of friendship until she passed away in 1993 which is a, sh- a short time frame when I think about it I wasn't a social person I didn't go to the theatre with her or accompany her to concerts I mean it, it was just a sort of nice sort of friendship and but I was also conscious at the same time how overlooked she was in mm. this country mm. how snobbish the jazz world was in Britain towards her and how she was sort of missed out of the history books the music history books the jazz history books well, World War II books. Mm. Her war service alone is phenomenal. And I just felt very sad about that. So it was always my ambition, I suppose, to, to try and rectify that. And so when I started writing books some years later, any opportunity I had to, to write about Adelaide, I would do it.
0: I mean, we've we've all heard about Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, you know, and, and thinking about the war, have heard of Vera Lynn and Gracie Fields, and yet, as you say, Adelaide should
3: be in that company, but is missing.
0: Is being written out.
3: She wasn't even written in, uh, and and that was my from a very early age, long before I met her. I was conscious of this, but I was conscious of many black artists, performers in this country that were missing. In terms of black history, only certain people are elevated to a certain position. So it's always, when they talk about expatriates, black expatriates going to Europe, it's always Josephine Baker Mm. or Paul Robeson. The rest are all kind of don't exist. And yet Adelaide became a star during the Harlem Renaissance of uh, the 1920s at the same time as Josephine became a star in, in Paris. You mentioned the
0: Harlem Renaissance and, and it would be really brilliant to sort of to go back 100 years, go back to the Roaring Twenties, go mm. back to New York, back to Harlem. And just to to give us a bit of a picture of what is meant by the Harlem Renaissance.
3: Well, my sort of take on it and, and a kind of simplistic view of it is that it was just an explosion of African-American music, art, poetry, literature, theatre, jazz, you name it, anything to do with the arts. Mm. And it came from African-Americans from the sort of mid-twenties onwards, thereabouts. And, And it was an extraordinary thing because it threw up all these great names that we now know, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong... And Adelaide was right in the centre of that. Adelaide was a jazz innovator long before Elvis George. Elevitch George was still in school when <laughs> Adelaide created the sound of jazz as we know it, along with Louis
0: Armstrong. She is right there at the beginning with Duke Ellington. She's in the Cotton Club. What do you imagine that would have been like? She loved
3: it. She said, we knew what we were getting into. But the money was good and it was the biggest showcase of African-American talent in the 1920s and 30s. So she said we were happy to be there. She said that we knew that it was run by the, the gangsters. So we, you know, we, we were careful to... St- Speaking of the gangsters, is there a something about Al Capone? Mm. What was that? She was asked to go to, she was touring with her husband and they were in Chicago and they got a contacted by somebody who said i don't know whether they told them it was al capone or they said that you are required to sing at this private club in chicago late at night she was taken in a car and then she found i think she then found out it was al capone she was singing for at a private but they all did i mean elizabeth welch did had the same thing with dutch shorts in new york well, it sounds terrifying you, you didn't say no you just had to do it
0: In in terms of the exploitation, Mm. I mean, you've already sort of alluded to this about where white America is in this. White America Mm. is in the paying seats, Mm. is coming along to watch, Mm. as it were. I I heard that Adelaide, when she was sort of trying to live in the New York suburbs, that everything went to hell in a handcart as soon as white people saw a black person. Yeah,
3: by by the sort of early thirties, I think it was about nineteen thirty-two. She was earning enough. She was very highly paid. Probably one of the highest paid black artists in America. And she and her husband bought this beautiful house.
2: My experience of a couple years ago while on a coast-to-coast tour should serve me well. Being a member of the oppressed race, I think I'll be able to accustom myself to conditions as they exist. However, there are many details I would rather not go into.
3: And the neighbours, the white neighbours, didn't want them. I mean, they, they apparently burnt, somebody burnt a cross on their lawn. Uh, they, they drove them out. And that, that sort of just preceded the point at which Bert said to Adelaide, I've had enough of this, because Bert was Trinidadian. He was a proud British subject. You don't treat me like this, I don't have to put up with this. Even when Adelaide and Bert went on tours of the American South, can you imagine? They're not allowed to eat in in, in the restaurants. So they would send Adelaide and, and the band, the black musicians, would send Bert in because Burt could pass as Spanish. And Burt would put on his Spanish accent because he was light skinned and had curly hair, and he would go into the restaurant and, and in a sort of fake Spanish accent, order all this food and take it back to them in in in, in the bus and, and, and but he'd had enough and he said to her, I, I can't live in this country anymore. I can't live with this virulent hatred and, and segregation, which is why they moved to Paris.
0: I mean, you you mentioned Josephine Baker, but th- there are a number of other mm. um, African-American and Caribbean women who are singers and artistic. There's Elizabeth Welsh, there's Mona Baptiste after the Second World War, who seem to have a different experience in Europe. I mean, it, it, is, is it... Is it too simplistic to say that Europeans were nicer than Americans?
3: Europeans were more welcoming. Alberta Hunter was one of the great African-American blues singers of the 1920s. And she was the one that was quoted as saying, in Europe, they had our name up in lights. In America, they wouldn't put our name up in lights. I mean, Josephine Baker, Adelaide Hall, they couldn't have had those careers that they had o- over in Europe in America
0: and um, they could and they could live wherever they wanted they could live could wherever, eat they wherever they wanted
3: absolutely uh, they they had the freedom they had the freedom and not just the freedom to be who they wanted to be but to dress glamorous and the photographs that have survived bear witness to that
0: so there's this point <coughs> sort of in the mid 30s though when bert mm. says i've had enough mm. Um, And so they pack their bags and they come across to Europe, sells out the Moulin Rouge, plays in Berlin. And and at some point, Adelaide and Burt then settle in England and
3: in London. That was simply because the rise of Hitler, American expatriates or any expatriate were encouraged, not ordered, but encouraged by their countries to leave and get out. Some didn't. I mean, some African-Americans got caught up. Elizabeth Welch's brother, John, was studying music in Berlin and was left alone right up until 1940 just to go about his business in in Nazi Germany. Then in 1940, he's arrested and put in a concentration camp. Elizabeth told me that story. It was not a very well-known story. And he was repatriated to America in 1944. Adelaide and Bert decided to go to London because he was a British subject. Adelaide was British by marriage. It seemed the wisest thing to do.
0: Bert was her manager as well, wasn't yeah. he? I mean, so this is—they're quite a close yeah. business couple as well as a, as well as a creative couple.
3: Bert was the one that took care of the business side of things and did it very well, but she was the one that had to go out and do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I think the British public warmed to her, because it's wartime. She's gregarious, she's outgoing, she's uh, confident, she's a terrific singer and And dancer. And she
0: really throws herself into this. I mean, you know, she signs up with Ensor, she she gets (laughs) herself a... uh, She's very pleased with her uniform. She keeps talking about how... Beautiful it is and stuff like that. Well, that's that.
3: because you see the standard issue uniform. She said was so uncomfortable, so she went to Madame Modell of Grosvenor <laughs> Street and had her own un- <laughs> uniform made. <laughs> there's
0: there's a famous story. Well, she
3: she always said she always said like because Bert was a sailor, a merchant seaman before they met in New York and married in 1924. She said, "Well, if he could, she said, if my husband can be a sailor, I can be a soldier." <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's quite right, too. Yeah. And there's a famous story of her playing in the, I think it's the Lewisham Hippodrome. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, And the bombs are falling and and everybody is told to stay in.
2: Even though we could hear bombs exploding outside the theatre, we carried on. We were told that no one could leave the theatre because it was too dangerous. Outside, everything was burning. So we carried on. And I managed to get the audience to join in. Next day, the newspapers reported that I had sung fifty-four songs until the All clear sounded at three forty-five a.m. in the morning.
3: She lost her voice. That's amazing. She lost <laughs> and her poor pianist. She said. She said he could, could barely move his fingers, <laughs> and it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, fifty-four sounds a bit of an exaggeration, but. Knowing Adelaide as I did, it wouldn't have surprised me. She would have kept going. She was a real trooper.
0: There's a point in the war, and as you say, um, there are legends which are built around everything around this time. But there's a point in the war, I think, when Gracie Fields leaves Britain that... Right uh, at the beginning some, that, that some people say that Adelaide was effectively the highest paid or one of the highest paid female entertainers in the country
3: I don't know how people assess these things but it, it's probably true because when the war broke out in 1939 Gracie was married to an Italian and Italians were the enemy now if they'd stayed and not gone to America he would have been put in a camp. Yeah. So once she's gone in 1939, 1940, Adelaide was, was up there. That's why it's so extraordinary that she's not as well remembered or respected.
0: Yeah. And it isn't just that she was around during the war. She stayed in Britain until she died in the early 90s. And so she's got the first post-war BBC TV recording. She's the first black artist to have a long-term contract with the BBC. First female black singer at the Royal Variety Show. And she's there all the way through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. 90s. uh, 90s. You know, she's the Guinness Book of Records says she's the longest serving recording artist of the 20th century. Well,
3: span. So she she makes her first recording in New York in 1927 and the final recording in 1991, which was the Cole Porter Centenary Gala Concert. So I don't know many years, my maths is terrible. So 1927 to 1991, not many people could match that. Yeah. In fact, yeah. the Guinness Book of Records said no one can. Yeah. But whether that, that still holds, I don't know, but it's a, it's a, it's a long stretch. It's a
0: long stretch, and yet, and yet, as you say, we don't know of her. She's not sort of up there in the pantheon. No. It seems to me that Adelaide seemed very comfortable in variety. And I just wonder whether sort of whether British variety somehow wasn't seen as serious enough or, no. or important enough.
3: Snobbery again. It's about snobbery and you see the music halls were closing down one after the other in the nineteen fifties because of television. And although Adelaide was indeed a pre-war BBC television pioneer, mm. she had her own live shows for Mode Nightclub on BBC television outside broadcasts in 1939. BBC were pretty innovative. Mm. I've got flyers of Adelaide at, at these sort of end of the pier shows in, oh, in, really? in, in Stockport. I don't want to say anything against places like Stockport or Hull, <laughs> but it, it's like to have gone from the Cotton Club to the end of the pier in Stockport. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite. But she adapted. The reason I'm saying it, it's not because I'm looking down my nose because it provided what... And she would tour, for years she toured in these Those Were the Days and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Memories of You and all these sort of old survivors of the musicals. Sandy Powell. Can you hear me, mother? (laughs) Somebody <laughs> said to me, I went to one of those shows and you uh, said, I had to walk out, that man just drove me mad. And and all these sort of, like, snake charmers and... and oh, there was this lovely woman, Terry Carroll. She appeared at Adelaide's birth 90th birthday. She was a paper tearer. <laughs> she would stand on stage and it was this concert. What, and make
0: sort of, like, dandelion chains and things. And no, things no, and she would make trees.
3: Paper. She would make palm trees and... <laughs> Oak trees, and and she was amazing, and she was in her sort of 80s then.
0: I mean, if if she had stuck closely to
3: jazz... But she did. She did Calypso, she did Rodgers and Hammerstein, she did songs by near enough everybody you can think of, all all different styles and types of music, sing-along numbers, and jazz, she always kept jazz in her repertoire. And I don't think she's ever been given credit for that, by the jazz world that although she mixed it with Rodgers and Hammerstein and so on, and Calypso, she would always do the jazz songs, the famous jazz songs that she was famous for, Creole Lovecore. It, it, you know, the wordless vocal, she would always do that and other famous jazz songs that she she sang. So she didn't just stick to one thing. That like Ella stuck to one thing. Ella only sang jazz and then later on she started doing the Cole Porter Songbook and so on, those beautiful albums. <coughs> But Adelaide was more yeah. sort of diverse and and, and more adventurous in yeah. some respects. Yeah,
0: I get the impression that Adelaide's story and Adelaide's life is a very happy and positive one. But is is there a a sadness there of of something unfulfilled as well, or or actually would Adelaide have said, "Yeah, I'll take this. This is good."
3: I never got an impression from Adelaide that she regretted anything and that she felt unfulfilled at all. I'm sure a lot of black artists, particularly American, of her generation felt thwarted and, and not developed as, mm. as a star mm. um, and not given leading roles in films, mm. really, just just little guest spots. So there, there was a lot of frustration. Um, but not Adland, no, I never... There was nothing, no sign of bitterness or regret at all. And she must have had her hard times. I know a few things about her private life which were sad, but but nothing kind of really dramatic. Mm. She was a grafter, very hard worker, very professional, very clever, in the sense that somebody said that they went to see her in one of her Thanks to the Memory concerts, and she had this thing where she would say Oh, there's a couple at, at the back. It's their um, wedding anniversary, and they've asked me to sing such and such, and I'm going to sing. And he said, when I went back the following night, she said exactly the same thing. <laughs> so she had these little tricks. That's a perfect. Oh, it's wonderful, and I'm sure lots of we all know do. about show business people and the tricks they use yeah. and the, the stories they tell.
0: Yeah. And are there any um, mm. statues, any blue plaques, anything Nothing. For
3: her? No. Nothing. And I, I wrote to English Heritage Blue Plaques, I think it was in the year 2000, 2001, and they sent me a letter saying her, that the committee had looked at the, my nomination and looked and researched her life, and they decided that she wasn't sufficiently well-known mm. to warrant a blue plaque. Uh, try again in 10 years' time. So I tried again in 10 years' time, about <laughs> like 2011, I think it was. They turned it down again. Yeah. And then after Black Lives Matter, they contacted me and said, we're going to revisit your nomination for Adelaide Hall. Uh-huh. <laughs> They were revisiting some of the black subjects that had been nominated for English Heritage Blue Plaques and were turned down. Getting their act together. Fingers crossed. Good. Um, she'll get it this time round.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. And before you go, you know what I'm going to ask. Who is your hidden hero for the Trapped History Hall of Fame?
3: Well, there is someone that I feel should be better known. I've got a new book. Here comes the book plug. It's a children's version of my book, Black Poppies, which is about the black servicemen and the black community in Britain during the First World War. So in the children's version, which is an adaptation of the the Black Poppy's adult book, there is a chapter about Mabel Mercer. Mabel was born in Staffordshire in mm. 1900. Yeah. She was mixed race, black father who she never knew. He wasn't on the scene. White mother who she never knew because mm. she was away with the fairies and went off as a musical performer. Mabel never saw her again, really. So her parents never figured in her young life, but she was raised by her grandmother, And her grandmother sent her to convent school in Manchester.
0: By her white grandmother. By
3: her white grandmother. She never knew her black father (coughs) or any of her black relatives, never met any black people growing up in Manchester and that kind of area at this time. So 1914, she leaves school Mm. to go to work. Mm. So she joins her aunt and uncle on her mother's side and cousins in a musical troupe. So all through the First World War, Mabel is performing as a musical entertainer. First of all, with her aunt and uncle's act, family act, yeah. and then out on her own. I mean, there are two American biographies of Mabel, and they don't have any of this information in. Now, what happened with Mabel, very quickly, after the First World War, she's working in London in Western shows, like Showboat with Paul Robeson, In the chorus, she's a chorus uh, person, and in the Blackbird's Review Mm. with Florence Mills in 1926 at the London Pavilion. So she's gaining more experience and then eventually goes to Paris at the end of the 1920s and becomes one of the great cabaret singers of Paris in the 1930s.
0: So this is sort of smoky rooms. But these are the
3: grand, grand cabaret places. Uh, the, 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 the upmarket ones where the Parisians, the wealthy Parisians would go to. Come the Second World War, Mabel doesn't come back to England. She goes to New York. Right. So she goes to New York and in the 1940s and 50s establishes herself as one of the top high-class cabaret singers of her generation. She influenced everybody. Frank Sinatra, before he became the legend would go and see Mabel in New York when he was younger. And he said that she taught him, this is what he said, Mabel Mercer taught me everything I know about a lyric, how to phrase a lyric, how to present it. She was extraordinary. And she never lost her English Staffordshire accent, but she lost her voice early on. She had a kind of soprano voice. But when she became a famous cabaret, influential cabaret singer in New York, She's not really a singer. She's a talk talks, and her talk. voice has dropped. Her voice well. has dropped.
0: Oh, but that's cabaret. I mean, but that, that's, that's cabaret make, that makes it, doesn't it?
3: It's about acting the songs, and she carries right on until she dies at the age of eighty-four in nineteen
0: eighty-four. And so, this girl from the Midlands.
3: Mm. The
0: reason why she has um, two American biographies about her it has got nothing to do with being from the Midlands or anything like no. that. No. It's this astonishing life she had Extraordinary, Because
3: all through the 1950s and 60s, she's recording. But she never attains the fame of Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. I mean, when you've got a minute, just sit and go on YouTube and look up Mabel Mercer and listen to some of her songs i mean she 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 was very what mabel used to do which was very interesting was she used to save songs so say uh, a composer and lyricist would write the songs for a broadway show that flopped and it ran for three performances and the critics were horrible and they took it off but there would all be one or two songs which were really exquisite and they would have been lost if mabel hadn't Discovered them and sang them,
0: and that's the key, though, isn't it? That's that's the clever thing that great artists do is they yeah. find something which has been forgotten, forgotten, and yeah. They breathe life or into. buried, yeah.
3: And it, it it's it's um, yeah. It, that's what she used to do. So when you go to her CDs, and I've got lots of. She does sing a few Cole Porter songs, and but there's lots of songs that I've never heard of or would never have heard of. Beautiful songs if she hadn't discovered them and recorded them and put them in her repertoire. And then she was given the presidential... She took American citizenship eventually, so she became an American citizen and then was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom a year before she died. Wow. I know. Wow. And she'd come from these humble beginnings in Staffordshire in 1900. So that would be my nomination, Mabel Mercer.
0: Wow, that is an amazing nomination. I
3: absolutely adore her.
0: I've never heard of Mabel
3: Mercer. That's why I I mentioned
0: her. What's your takeaway on Adelaide, Carla?
1: So she had nowhere near the recognition or the success that Billy or Ella did. But she was their equal. Ella saw that. Josephine feared that. And yet, where is she? Is Adelaide in a Hall of Fame?
0: Not that I can see. There is uh, a compilation CD with that title, but that's it.
1: Despite this lack of fame, she didn't really seem that bothered, did she? She wasn't angry or bitter. She was just really content with what she'd achieved.
0: I think you're right, though, in in terms of whether she's bothered or not. She, She does take a very long walk down Variety Lane and spends a lot of time in the 60s and 70s and 80s on chat show sofas. Perhaps really her own range of musical styles got in the way of becoming a jazz icon mm. uh, like Ella Fitzgerald or someone like that.
1: Yeah. And maybe America would have given her more chances to yeah. flourish in the jazz world See. after the war and Yeah. She was with Burt for nearly 40 years, very happy again. And okay, maybe a husband manager isn't the best situation to be in. But ultimately, when you think about it, she was a success on her own terms, wasn't she? And there's there's nothing better than that, really. Yeah, yeah
0: I'd agree with you. I mean, some, some people, they just slip out of the limelight without any fuss. Mm. I don't think that means, though, that we shouldn't do our best to try and push them back into it. Hope you've enjoyed Trapped History today. Tune in for our next episode when we will be meeting four heroes in one. He was a World War II bomber navigator, a prisoner of war, his country's top lawyer, and the mastermind behind the Windrush.
1: You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Carla Rose Shaughnessy and Oswin Baker. Our engineer has been M.K. Lee. Catch up with more Trapped History on Instagram and visit trappedhistory.com for transcripts, extended interviews and more. And remember what James Baldwin said, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. See you soon.